Well, good morning. I, uh, I was thinking this past week, uh, as uh, this is my 50th year living and my 50th year of enjoying uh, movies, I, I thought about what transpired very early in my life, which was I was in fourth grade when I wrote my first script. Now, many of you wouldn't have known that about me. I don't share it much because it probably wasn't very good. And, uh, but I do love to write, and I remember writing a script based on the Six Million Dollar Man television show. And, and we actually performed it in my class, and for the record, they have done an inflation uh, adjustment. It, it, it would cost $33 million to make the Six Million Dollar Man today. And so I, I loved writing, and I loved stories. I loved making short stories. I loved thinking about stories. I apparently love to tell stories, a lot of them not true as a small child. And so, you know, story has been a huge part of my life. I do a, a bunch of reading on a bunch of different platforms throughout the course of my week. And, and so I, I've really been attracted to the idea of story. And I, I am thrilled to live in L.A., which is the birthplace and location of so many films and stories that I've actually enjoyed over the years. I have friends both here at our church and in the community that work in both the storytelling film industries, and, and it's, it's an exciting place to be in that regard. I, I wanted to venture today, and hopefully uh, you'll allow me to celebrate Easter this morning by analyzing a dramatic story in the life of the early church, the scriptures that were read this morning from Acts chapter 17. Lest anyone forget, the Bible itself is a collection of stories, stories about God, his people, his plan for us. And from Genesis to Revelation, we have what we will refer to as the story of God. But we also have in it the opportunity to learn about who he is, and about what he wants to do in our lives. We see his attributes. We see his character. And so today what I'd like to do is really focus in on a particular story with the title of our story today being The Three Reactions to the Resurrection. The Three Reactions to the Resurrection is really the essence of Acts chapter 17. This portion of the experience of the early church where the apostles, and in particular the leader Paul, went to other countries and took the gospel to the world. This story, the acts, the actions of the apostles, is what enabled them to uh, communicate with us about what life would be like as we talked about things. And in Paul's particular case in our passage today, he talked about the resurrection. And so like any good story analysis, we're going to look at three different things. We're going to look at the context and the characters. We're going to look at the actual conversation. And like any movie, you really want to know what the conclusion is. What's the end of the story? We begin with our context, and you heard the scriptures read this morning, but I will reread them for you here. Verses 16 through 18 of our passage says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching 
Jesus and the resurrection. Let me give you the, the context and the characters. Of course, we're in Athens, Greece. Now, don't know if you realize how similar Athens is to Los Angeles. It's a coastal city. It's a cultural center. It is a place where uh, education and the arts and philosophy are not just practiced but birthed. Uh, it was a massive population. Shipping was a huge component of their economy. And there is a really interesting phenomenon that both Athens and Los Angeles share, and that is they're both in basins that create these marine layers that actually, in their case, because they have terrible emission standards, they have huge problems like the L.A. fog smog problems we had in the 70s. That is what goes on in Athens right now. So they actually have a similar uh, geographic uh, hiccup as do we. We get our, we get our marine layer and it traps gases and traps exhaust and all these things. Uh, Athens is often referred to as the cradle of Western civilization. As early as the 5th century BC, which was often referred to as the uh, golden age of Athenian democracy, some of the thinkers who were a part and have formed the foundation of what would even remain to this day Western civilization, our world, were present the philosopher Socrates, the medical expert Hippocrates, who has the Hippocratic Oath that doctors actually still profess. It is in this environment that the Apostle Paul introduces Christianity to the first th for the first time. And, and it's important because oftentimes the revisionist historians will tell you that the, the, the faith that is Christianity was born into this world that was very moral. And you almost kind of sort of imagine, if you'll hear them tell the story, that the context in which Christianity was born was, was a lot like Puritan New England. You know, there were all these really religious people already, and they kind of sort of got ideas, and they said, let's create a new religion, and it was that simple. But anything, anything else could be true. In particular, the Roman Empire wasn't just godless, they exalted their emperor as God himself. The culture itself was as licentious and morally bankrupt as anything we see in the world today. And yet Christianity was birthed and thrived in this context. Makes you wonder why. And in our case, it makes us wonder how. Preliminarily, we can say it is because it provided an answer for the soul's thirst the thirst we all have for the living God, the hope we have that we can connect with our Creator. If you look carefully at the passage, you see that Paul is distressed as he enters into Athens because of the abundant presence of idols. Now, idols in their context were often man-made images designed to fill this void left by the absence of the real God. These idols, while not made in tiki statue form any longer, are a part of our lives in Western civilization too, but they take on a little bit different form. Tim Keller, author of the book Counterfeit Gods, which I would recommend to you, says this, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. 
An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. So you see Paul moving into this culture, engaging it, and his distress was not because he was so holy and these people weren't, but because he loved the people and they were not finding the God their soul craved. So it says, he reasoned. He not only took the initiative, but he appealed to their reason to see if they would believe in Jesus. Now, it's also important because it has ramifications for our world and our existence that Paul was assuming that his message about Jesus was right. And as we'll see, this presumption was itself offensive to some of the people he talked to. Now, the cast of characters is introduced as being in two different locations, and then a third that will come later. There's the synagogue of Athens, and then there's the marketplace of Athens. So you've got the religious world of this particular culture that Paul was engaging because it wasn't connected to Jesus, the resurrected Savior. And then he was dealing with the Gentile, the non-religious, non-Jewish population of his day. When you see this, it shows that Paul believed with all of his heart because of his encounter with Jesus that the gospel was supposed to go to the whole world. You see him reaching not just so-called religious peoples, but unreligious peoples. You see the gospel not being restrained and refined just for the Jewish community where it was birthed, but for the entire world, including the Greek universe in which he was a part, which introduces us to the characters of this play. The characters are Paul, the apostle, who is the star, if you will, Jews, the Jewish believers who existed in the synagogue in Athens. Then there are God-fearing Greeks. Paul uh, calls them that. In some translations, it's, it's, uh, he is, those people are referred to as devout persons. We also have the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These were the great minds of the Athenian day, of the first century Athens. This, this is, so you've got the great religious minds, you've got the great philosophical non-religious minds, and Paul is now engaging them with this simple reality. Now, Paul is referred to, and we know that they think his message is simpler because some call him a babbler. Others said, what you're talking about is, is so foreign to us. And it's because in our modern culture, what this this you, we can see the same thing and that is that this notion that somebody could come in and talk about their faith as if it is the way and not just a way is offensive paul has seen that the jesus is a resurrected savior he is genuinely alive and he is bringing the message of the gospel to them and some particularly in our generation, think it is obnoxious and condescending to introduce this Christianity into other people's lives, particularly when they start saying things like, it is offensive when missionaries from the West go into other countries and other worlds to talk about this resurrected Jesus. The irony of all that is that 
the gospel was not born in the West. The erroneous presumption about some who oppose the spread of Christianity today is that it was born in Western culture. It originates in the Middle East, in Palestine in specific, and then it spread intentionally across Asia and Europe and Greece. The last few hundred years of Christian influence on the West is merely a byproduct of its original spread, and that's what you're seeing in this story. The birthplace of Christianity is Jerusalem. And then it moves and spreads across the world. We're sitting on the other side of the globe today talking about the risen Savior. We didn't create this faith. Uh, We are the byproducts of it. So Paul is called, as he's introducing to this cast of characters, in this particular context, he is called to a meeting of the most heady and influential of his city. Now that the context and the characters are set, As in any great novel or story, now we get into the content or the story, the conversation itself. And so we look to Acts 17, verses 19 through 21, and this is where it picks up a bit. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So clearly Paul is bringing something to them that is not a part of their already established culture. It's certainly not a part of either their religious or their secular worlds. This is something completely new, which once again reinforces what we know, and that is that Christianity is a revolutionary concept. It's a revolutionary view of our relationship to our Creator. There are some strange ideas, they say, quote-unquote. And here are the strange ideas that are a part of Paul's gospel, as you can read not only in the continuing chapter, but in other parts of the New Testament. God made us in His image. We rebelled against His divine authority. He previously communicated that if we do this, we would be judged and cast out from his holy presence. He created and executed a divine search and rescue plan by sending his son Jesus to die for us. And then Jesus proves he is divine. The God who created us, when he rises from the dead after he was crucified, dead, and buried. These are the strange ideas that they're bringing. This is totally new turf, in particular, this resurrection. The the simplicity of the message seemed foolish. This is Paul's testimony in a letter he wrote to the Corinthians, that that the, the wise of the culture found this to be obnoxious, found this to be so, like, irritatingly foolish. Because in one part, the message is simple, But on the other part, there is this supernatural event contained therein where a guy dies and then comes back to life. Not only is this a, well, you'd call it a not an everyday event, but for a lot of people, not just then but now, this is a never happened event. The super religious Hebrew in the synagogue and the super intelligent Greek both thought it was such a silly notion. Now, for the super-religious person, the person who is perhaps not religious but spiritual, they object to the gospel, the simplicity of it, because 
in the Jews' case, this Messiah wasn't coming to make life easy for them. The the notion for most Jews was that when the Messiah came, the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, he was going to reestablish Israel as a world power. And so all of a sudden, the glory days of Israel were going to return on this earth. And Paul was talking about a very different role and a very different mission for the Messiah. This Messiah's message was going to be not about obeying the rules and the law in order to make yourself acceptable to God or hope that one day you will be acceptable to God. This Messiah was going to be about taking on the punishment that was due the humble person who recognized they could never do enough to make God forget about all the bad things they'd done. This Messiah was going to be about not obeying the law to make yourself acceptable to God, but humbling yourself and asking for his forgiveness. For the highly intellectual person, or the one who likes to think they are highly intellectual, a Christian message that can be comprehended by children is not worth their philosophical assent. Paul went to another Greek city called Corinth, And when he ministered there, he shared with them and communications with them that the general notions of their culture were set against Christianity. In this letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, Paul says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So why would the Christian message be a stumbling block? To hear some say it, uh, the Christian message is all about love. So why would anybody object to that? Why would anybody object to love thy neighbor? We, We can all get on board with that, right? What was going on that made these people so hostile not only to Jesus but also to his followers? And the core of what makes Christianity so difficult for some to embrace is that Jesus had to die to pay for sins. Part and parcel of being a Christian is recognizing that Jesus Jesus of Nazareth, the historical figure, his verified historical death on a cross was not for any other reason than to substitute him for anyone who would ever believe. That was to satisfy the justice of God. It was because of the sin of people. We deserve the holy justice of God, but instead, in Christ, we receive mercy. And this is a beautiful reality. God satisfies his holy justice Because when rules are broken, when law is violated, we all celebrate when a perpetrator is caught and justly sentenced. We love it when we get mercy, but when we're offended, we love it when somebody else gets justice. Well, God, the Holy One of Israel, He insists on justice across the board, which means all of us are going to have to face the realities of who we are in relationship to His law. Jesus came to consistently apply the law that requires justice for wrongdoings, but graciously to bear our guilt and shame and transfer to us his holiness. 
Paul wrote this to the Romans in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, verses 25 and 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. This notion of divine justice is offensive to our system. We, we don't like it unless we think that there is a crime that is so vicious, so awful, so terrible that we're thankful that the Lord intervened in some way and was divinely just. We oftentimes as human beings will decry the absence of God when we see genocide taking place or we see the Hitlers of the world wreaking havoc and evil. We think, where was God in all of this? So there's a part of us that wants God to be just and wants God to hold the world accountable. But then when it comes to us, it scares the living daylights out of us. When we actually see the justice of God, it, it sort of offends us. We're so accustomed to the mercy of God, which is ever-present, that when he does express his justice in some way, most of us are sort of thrown. One of my professors, Dr. R.C. Sproul, said this, the most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. If ever a person had room to complain for injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man to ever be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here's where our astonishment should be focused. So there is this dual component to religious folks. It was, I am not going to just say I'm broken and fallen and need forgiveness. I'm going to come up with an entirely different paradigm for how I'm going to deal with God. For the super intelligent, it was like, please, somebody came back from the dead. The resurrection for both was offensive. The resurrection of Christ would have validated the claims of the apostles to the religious person that this was the methodology God was going to do, use to restore humanity. This was his search and rescue plan. To the super intelligent person, it was offensive because it's like we have never seen anybody come back from the dead. Science would say it can't happen. We believe in science. So you're an idiot. This brings us to the conclusion of our story. We've seen the cast. We've seen the context. We know the conversation that's taking place. And so we move to a passage that we haven't read yet this morning, and that is at the end of this entire experience Paul is having in Athens, the final five verses of Acts 17. And they read like this, quote, this is Paul speaking to them. Therefore, since we are God's offspring created by God, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And here comes our story. The three reactions to the resurrection are taken right from these verses. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, 
a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. There are three reactions to the resurrection, and that's true for us today. Three possible resurrection reactions. All right, the first is you can smugly, perhaps sneer mockingly. Oh, the the silly faith of those Christians. And if that's your position, God bless you. Um, You're you're among friends, and I've been made fun of by people before, so you're not going to hurt my feelings. In Paul's case, he did not step back from that. There are plenty of cultural influences in our country, and specifically in our little basin called Los Angeles, that would mock the idea that there was such a thing as a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Another response would be the the response of somebody who's seeking. They say, I want to study some more. I really want to know more about this. This is piquing my interest because I get that if Jesus Christ, the historical figure, really came back from the dead, then there are some implications here. There's some things I have to consider. I mean, again, he may be dead and the body may have been stolen and hidden like all these people were saying, but if he isn't and he really did come back to life, that does tend to validate who he claimed to be. And so I want to study some more. And we encourage you to be here, to enjoy our community, to investigate, to ask questions. We're all about that. Then there are some who surrender to their maker. And and this is really what it's all about. Paul says, you know, we were created in the image of God. We are God's offspring. He made us for relationship. We violated that relationship, but through Christ, through the resurrected Christ, you can now know that your sins have been forgiven. It's time to celebrate, not to push back. God says he gives grace to the humble. He's particularly opposed to the proud Because what the proud person says is, I don't need your son's sacrifice for my sins. I got it. I got this one. The proud will pay for their sins on their own, as they wish. Jesus is offering the humble the opportunity to say, the resurrected Christ invites me into fellowship with the Father. I am completely cleansed in his sight of past, present, and future sins. He has, as theologians call it, imputed his righteousness to me through my faith, through my dependence on him. Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 3 concludes a series of thoughts he has about this divine search and rescue plan. And Paul says this in Romans 3, 22 and 23. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Let me unpack this very religious section of Scripture for you so that you understand completely what's going on. Apart from rules, apart from the holy law of God, the Ten Commandments, just watched that again yesterday with Charlton Heston. Apart from those things, there is now a new plan, a rescue plan, that makes us acceptable to the Father. It makes us righteous in his sight. And it comes by faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, Paul says, between somebody who considers themselves super religious and somebody who considers themselves super secular 
or somewhere down the middle where I'm religious, not religious, but spiritual. Everybody on the planet, whether you are a Hebrew and the origin of God's covenant people or whether you are a foreigner on the other side of the globe, to all there is one thing we share in common, and that is we all need forgiveness of sins. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the ones who are humble are able to be made acceptable, or as theologians and Paul even uses the word justified, we are justified in our our presence in the holy presence of God. We are justified being in his presence because Jesus has paid the price. When I was a little kid, my dad went to work at the White House. He was an assistant to President Carter. And one day I got to have lunch at the White House. Now, not with President Carter, but at the White House. It was pretty cool. And I remember walking through there and getting the badge and going through all the Secret Service and all the different things you got to do to actually walk into the White House, a complicated process. And thinking as I sat there with my father eating lunch, he, my mom, at the White House, how did I get here? How is it possible that I have entered this place? And I realized it was because of the efforts of my dad. My dad justified my presence there. It's not like every 12-year-old can walk off the street and go, hey, can I come in there and have lunch? You've got to have somebody with a badge. You've got to have somebody who's actually working there, somebody who has earned the right to be there, make way for you to come in too. And this is what's in play with Christianity. It's a place for the person who's willing to humbly say, I need access to the Father, but I can't do it on my own. I don't have enough cred. I don't have enough of anything. Matter of fact, I think if God really knew me, he wouldn't want me. That's not true. He loved you so much that before you ever began to even think about him, let alone before you were ever born, 2,000 years ago, the Savior came to die in your place. If you believe and trust in him, Jesus was thinking of you on the cross. He knew from all eternity all who would trust and believe. And he's waiting, if you're his child, for you to receive him today. Let me pray to that end, shall we? Father, it is Easter. We celebrate not only the resurrection of our Savior because it validates your search and rescue plan for us. Father, we also celebrate that so many of us have been brought to new life and that it is not an arrogance that enables us to say we are right with you. It is the complete opposite. It is our humility that says with boldness, We are unworthy to be in your presence. You have made a way, Jesus, for us to be justified in the presence of Almighty God. And today, we have friends here, we pray, that are ready to come in. They're ready to be ushered in to sit and have a meal with the creator of their souls. Jesus, would you move, we pray, in their hearts.